Hello friends, welcome to episode 93 of the Alabama Liberal Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about the Minpire Strikes Back, Uncle Thomas, and the Supreme Cult. I might change that to the Supreme Inquisition. Not sure if it's going to be the Supreme Cult or the Supreme Inquisition, but either way you get the idea. The Spanish Inquisition, a holy body going around looking for heretics and witches to burn, and so is this current Supreme Court. They're trying to basically erode the separation of church and state. You can almost look at them and say, church one, state zero. A lot of times I don't necessarily like to just recap current events in these podcast episodes and, and my articles and anything I do in Alabama Liberal. On alabamaliberal.com, it's a one-man show in the sense of I do all the videos, I do all the podcast episodes, all the articles from beginning to end for the last 10 or 11 years. The reason I mention that is because I'll never break a story necessarily like the New York Times or Vox, or the Daily Beast, they break stories, or they do breaking news. Breaking news! If you want to know if Justice Scalia died, or something that's actual breaking news, which CNN almost never is real breaking news, you'll go to one of those websites, and you'll look that up, because they're always going to be able to respond to that faster than I can. I'll never be able to beat them to the punch. The only things I've really talked about that they haven't are Alabama-specific things, like a specific thing about an Alabama politician, or political issue. The Attorney General of the state, Steve Marshall, that's somebody that I I've met before that I have known personally. And so that might be something that I know more about than they do. But in general, they're going to beat me to the punch on anything that's not in my very specific wheelhouse. And so when it comes to my site, the only reason to do it and the only reason to provide any value or any interest to people, because it's not the money, I don't get paid to do it, is to kind of talk about issues in a different way. Not necessarily try to be the first to talk about it, but try to find new angles into it. So I don't necessarily want to do like just breaking news or big stories or recapping what you already know about. But yet, at this time, it would feel weird to do an episode about anything but abortion and abortion rights. The last episode was kind of about that, so I also don't want to make it redundant or do the exact same thing twice. But in the last episode, I was prophetic in a terrible way. I didn't mean to tell the future and what was going to happen. I was almost not wanting to be Nostradamus. I was not wanting to be correct. But in the last episode, which 92 is really good, if you haven't listened to that or you skipped some, please go back and listen to it because it kind of builds on this episode. I also don't like to do direct sequels, but they do overlap a little. But I talked a lot about open carry laws. I didn't even even though this was something the Supreme Court was considering overturning, was that a state couldn't have a ban on open carry. I talked a lot about open carry, not even knowing the Supreme Court would pick that up and address it, because I recorded that episode a day or two before they gave that verdict, and really had no inkling that they would overturn a 100 year old plus, more than a hundred year old gun law in New York. You can't just have your gun visible everywhere you go and that states absolutely have the right to curb down on that. I mentioned in the last episode, I think it's incredible bad manners to carry a fucking assault rifle into a store or something and just freaks people out. It's manners and decency go a little bit of a way. I mean, there's things that don't necessarily want to see, even though they're not illegal to do them. It's just kind of like bad form and scares people and people want to leave that business. They don't want to be in a business where somebody's walking around with a gun. It makes people uncomfortable and puts them on edge when you can see it. Not to mention, it kind of goes against the whole point because they say like, well, we got to have this to protect ourselves if there's a bad guy in the room. Well, the bad guy in the room, he's going to see who's got a gun if they're doing an open carry. They're going to shoot you first, right? So the one guy with a gun on his hip, they shoot him first. Nobody else has got one. So then they know like who to target. So to me, it almost goes against the stated reason of carrying one. Then I talked about abortion a lot, which we had an idea definitely that they were going to overturn Roe versus Wade. De facto ruling of that is that abortion 
abortion became illegal in about half the country. And now there's going to be endless court battles fighting that. I also focused on that it will inflame tensions between red states and blue states. It already has. Gavin Newsom ran an ad in Florida over the 4th of July weekend. Gavin Newsom is running for re-election in California as the governor, but his race is so uncompetitive that he's decided to spend re-election resources in Florida, basically asking Floridians to move to California where they'll be more free and be more themselves. And of course, a lot of people here are like, hey, way ahead of you, because we always hear that like all the liberals are leaving the blue states and they're moving to Texas, they're moving to Florida, they're transforming these states. That isn't true at all. Of course, a lot of people from the South, they moved to California. People from red states absolutely moved to blue states as well. It goes both ways. In California, you can 100% find people. You go around asking people, where are you from? I've met three or four people from Alabama since I've been here. In New York, I didn't meet any people from Alabama. But, I mean, you're more likely to meet somebody from Afghanistan than Alabama in New York. But because it's L.A. and because it's very sunny and the weather's very warm and it's a climate that they're used to, you do meet people that are from Florida, from Alabama, from Georgia, just around people that I've met. Anecdotally, I've met more people from Florida or Virginia than I have met actual Californians in the time period that I've lived here. It goes both ways. I also don't believe that a lot of, quote-unquote, liberals are the ones moving to Texas and Florida. I think it's people that were semi-conservative in a state like California or New York, and they wanted to move to take advantage of a tax break. I think it's your soft conservatives or your apolitical people or your moderates, people that weren't strongly political one way or the other. The Republican logic of like, well, the only reason that Georgia and Texas are becoming more blue is because of all these liberals that are moving here, blah, blah, blah. I think that's a conservative fantasy because Elon Musk, you know, he's moved to Texas is he a liberal? No. Joe Rogan, he's moved to Austin, Texas, I believe it is. Is he a liberal? No. They're trying to take advantage of the tax break. Bob Shapak, the CEO of Disney, like a real shithead and a, and a Republican actually gives a lot of money to conservatives and Republicans. Disney, which they've labeled as a liberal company that isn't a liberal company, inside the company you can see that manifested in a hundred different ways. There's all these stories about they don't pay their people that well. They're not that big on the unions. Anytime the part people start talking about we want to make more than starvation wages, oh, this is liberal propaganda put out by the unions. They're very combative towards a lot of not having their stuff made in sweatshops overseas, their merchandise, having the parts be unionized labor. And he wanted thousands of California workers to move to Florida. They actually gave him an ultimatum in 2021. Think about the timing of this. You've just had a year of COVID because it was about August 2021. They've had a year of straight of COVID. A lot of people are not in a good place. They're not doing well. They've done remote work because anybody who doesn't need to physically be in an office is telecommuting. They're doing Zoom. And, and he's telling people, hey, we need you to move you and your family and sell your property in California and move to Florida. And not just anywhere in Florida, but like Lake Nona, which is like a swamp in the suburbs of Orlando, which is where they were building their new corporate headquarters. So moved to Central Florida, mosquito home, snake home, alligators running loose, probably a terrible place if you're a liberal to move to. And thousands of people quit. The few people that did move to Florida, it was people that probably didn't have strong political beliefs, but a lot of people quit. I know this firsthand. And I know for a fact there was a gay couple. They were going to move to Florida and they had bought a house and the person canceled it because the person selling the house said, I didn't know you were gay. I didn't want to sell my house to people like that. Now, you might wonder, why would they give a shit? If you're selling a house, you're selling a house. I'm selling a house. I don't care if, who it goes to or what they are necessarily. They literally hadn't reached the deal. They had agreed on a price. It wasn't finalized. They're complete. But the seller backed out of it because they didn't want a gay couple that was married, a married gay couple, which they said, they, we don't believe in that. That's not our beliefs. They didn't want them to buy that house. 
other black employees have decided not to move to Florida because of things like the Stop Woke Act, where DeSantis put in a law that says, basically, you can't talk about anything that makes white people uncomfortable at work. If there's anything that white people feel is bigoted towards them, a racist towards them, anti-racism training, discrimination training, diversity and inclusion training, and things like that, basically make a fuss, and they can either opt out of going to that stuff, or they could potentially sue the company if they force them to go to that stuff. So you have to think, well, we're in California. Our complaints are barely being listened to as it is at a company like Disney, which is 95% white at the corporate level. And you want us to move to Florida where they're literally making things like within Disney, there's something called the Wakanda Group, which is a group for black employees and kind of a networking thing. And that way they can feel supported within that corporation. And really it's just a way for black people to talk to each other. And it's not anything about the way hiring is based on or promotions are based on, but isn't really even necessarily helpful to the people that are inside of it. I mean, there's never been somebody who's been like, well, I beat out nine white people for a promotion just because of the Wakanda group's connections they put me through. It's almost a way for Disney to say, it's a way for black people to talk to each other. And it looks like we're doing something. The cops are on the beat. And more than anything really that would necessarily give them an advantage over somebody else. But what happens if they get to Florida and then somebody decides, well, this group right here, because they're interested in minority talent or they're talking about issues within management, they're talking about systemic racism within promotions and hirings, which Disney suffers from, that group it goes against the stop. Okay, what happens if they make a court case out of that? So a lot of black people and gay people, they've decided not to go to Florida. A lot of people that are just strongly liberal and are white have decided not to go because they just don't want to raise their kids in DeSantis country. They don't want to go to a state where the governor has decided not to order vaccines for children under five through the state health agencies. Now, I assume you can still get them through your private insurance companies, but in terms of making that fully available, he's the only state out of 50 governors, the only one that said he's not going to order it for kids five and younger. This affects my daughter. For a long time, too young to get the COVID vaccine because they didn't develop it for kids under five. It took them forever. It was a huge pain if you were trying to do a cruise or trying to do international travel or going on an airline or something like that. It's just better if everybody's vaccinated, but it's almost like she had two separate rules that were more stringent on her. So it's good now that she can be vaccinated and it took them a very long time to develop the COVID vaccine for kids that young. I feel more comfortable with it, but to have a governor who's basically like, I don't agree that kids should get that. And it's not just that I don't agree. I'm going to make it harder for parents to go about doing the right thing. You could see where they wouldn't feel comfortable moving to a state where he rips up the black congressional districts. Pete Buttigieg has said that some of the infrastructure projects, he wants to reunite black communities that have been split down the middle with highways and bypasses. And DeSantis has already declared that he plans to actively fight that. Basically a bigot, neo-confederate type running the state, you could understand where people might be reluctant to move to a place like that. To have the thousands of employees from California that have not moved there and chosen not to, that kind of goes in the face of like, oh, it's all liberals that are moving here, ruining the place, and they're taking over and blah, blah, blah. I think that's what they would like to believe instead of the truth, which is if there really is not such a thing as a concrete red state or a concrete blue state. California is a blue state, but 30 to 40% of the state is Republican. This is the home of Ronald Reagan, the home of Richard Nixon, Greg Gutfeld, that asshole on Fox News who's got the talk show, Ben Shapiro. Ben Shapiro's like, oh, I think that the best we can hope for is a conscious uncoupling of red and blue America that they basically can just get a divorce and there's a, a red 
red country and a blue country. He's from California. So you have to look at this asshole in the media proposing these ideas and say, yeah, but which country would you live in, Ben? You know, because you're from California. I'm assuming most of your friends and family live there. Probably all of your wealth is in New York and California. That's where you get paid. And I don't know if you technically on paper say that you live in Idaho or some shit like that so you can get out of paying taxes. Where would you live really and truly? And would it be easy for you to move back and forth between two countries? With New York, almost all the Fox newsroom is from New York. Rudy Giuliani and Maria Bartiromo and Ann Coulter and Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly. I mean, it kind of gets to be a bit comical when you look at all the people that Republicans listen to talking about, oh, coastal elites. Well, Tucker Carlson is a coastal elite. And Ann Coulter is a coastal elite. And Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity. And so you look at these people ranting and raving about all these coastal elites on Fox News by coastal elites. Donald Trump, of course, is a legendary lifelong New Yorker. New York City, born, bred, raised, never would really think about living anywhere else until he ran for president. I think the idea of a red state and blue state is manufactured. And when people talk about, oh, well, if you want to try to you know expand the Supreme Court or reform the Supreme Court, you better just go ahead and get ready for a civil war. How are you going to have that when 30 to 40 percent of Alabama is Democratic, 30 to 40 percent of New York is Republican? The states are mixed together. It's not like the slavery days when pretty much every community was a little bit homogenous and the people that weren't, they were slaves. They couldn't vote. They couldn't voice their objections. Like the slave owners didn't go out and take a straw poll amongst their slaves. Hey, how many of you would like to be free or whatever? They didn't care, right? They didn't give them that choice. So today, because people are not really divided along just strict economic lines of there's slave states and non-slave states and the slave states make a shitload of money off this industry and the non-slave states would like to see it ended for either moral reasons or perhaps their own economic reasons where they think like we can't compete with these wages where there's people that don't get paid anything and so you can't really divide the country in that way anymore. But the Supreme Court is trying to do that because when they kick an issue down to the state's rights level, that basically guarantees that you're inflaming tensions between the states. As I used the example last episode of if there was a Mississippi abortion doctor who's performed abortions and Mississippi makes that a death penalty case, which they could do that. And then he goes to California and then California says, no, we're not going to turn him over. We're not going to let this man be executed for something that should be legal and should have always been legal. And so you really unearth an entire can of worms. Another example is some states would like to criminalize the mother, the mother who has an abortion. If she were to go to Illinois or New York or wherever and get an abortion, when she comes back to her home state, they'd like to make it where she's still going to be punished as though she had the abortion in that state. You get into these very naughty legal issues, which I don't know if the Supreme Court designed it that way. I don't know if they like that. Maybe they like that because then they get to hear even more cases on what is or isn't legal or illegal. They get to put themselves more in the heart of the nation and deciding what is or isn't legal or what's going to happen. It's kind of almost navel-gazing in a certain way. It's almost selfish to be like, we'll overturn this Roe versus Wade, which has been settled law for 50 years, and then all of the legal issues that arise from that being overturned, we now get to hear those issues. So we've created this game that we get to be the head of and we get to decide all these rules about, whereas before, well, it's settled law and it's just the way it is and we're not that powerful because we're sitting back and it's really out of our hands. That's up to the Congress and that's up to the president. Now they've put themselves as the default branch of government that gets to decide all these issues. Another terrible verdict was the EPA. They basically curbed the EPA's power to regulate emissions. 
Republicans. Now, states like West Virginia, coal country, and Texas, oil country, they celebrated that ruling. But the majority of the country is like, well, this is terrible for us because now we're going to be more polluted, even for people in those states that need something like the EPA to step in and help them. This is really backwards. You know, you hear the phrase, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. An ounce of prevention is the EPA regulates how much you can pollute and then we don't have to come in and declare it a Superfund site. So if in West Virginia, they're able to blow the tops off of mountains, a way of trying to get the coal out of those mountains is to blow the tops off of them. And then the slurry, the filth, it just seeps down. And this happens in Eastern Kentucky. This happens in West Virginia and basically ruins that land. And then the EPA has to come in and declare it a Superfund site and clean that up and spend billions of dollars to clean up something so that those companies could make a few million dollars in profit. That's a very terrible system for the American taxpayer. When you basically have it of a company can make a few million more dollars and then we have to spend a few billion dollars to clean that up after they create an environmental disaster. Whereas before, we just wanted to regulate it to where we could prevent that from happening in the first place. But the Supreme Court comes in and says, no, 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 no. No one gave the EPA the authority to do this. Well, they did because they elected the president and the president sets the EPA agenda. That is very much the people gave them the authority to do that. It's like, well, it's not outlined in the Constitution that the president get the EPA is not in the fucking constitution. Like that makes no sense to me when somebody's like, I'm a strict constitutionalist because modern life is not in the constitution. It's a document from the 1770s. They never meant for it to be permanent. Like they never meant for it to be a painting that you put up in your house and it never changes. It's the Mona Lisa of governments to where by that token, almost nothing that we would do today would be legally protected because none of it's in the constitution and there would be no right to food, there would be no right to health care. There would be nothing about modern policing, such as SWAT teams and drones and surveillance. The Supreme Court has to interpret all these things as we get older, but to say, I take an originalist view of the Constitution. I'm a strict constitutionalist. If it's not in there, then it's basically worthless to me as a person. And as a court judge, I would refuse any attempts to moderate that. That, of course, can't stand. The original Constitution, they had slavery. They had the three-fifths compromise. There's things that we've gotten rid of from the original Constitution, that if you were a strict constitutionalist or a textualist or an originalist, however you choose to phrase it, you would then have to revert and put back in there. We've gotten rid of some of our craziest things, like slavery and like the three-fifths compromise and like the fact that voting was left up to the individual states. Because again, there's nothing in the Constitution about a woman can vote or a minority can vote or somebody who doesn't own property can vote. They left that up to the individual states, and they pretty much decided against those things for most people. That's why women's suffrage was such a huge deal. But if you start overturning that and going right back to that, you overturn all the amendments that have been passed in the last 200 years, just about. And then there is no women's suffrage. And there is no, you must allow people to vote, no matter their skin color and things like that. And if if the Supreme Court was to say, well, we'll just kick all this back down to the states, it wouldn't be a huge surprise to see states go and be like, like, oh, well, since we're strict constitutionalists, and of course, that's all self-serving because white males basically run state governments. And so if you were to go back and say, like, we'll make it harder for anybody but white males to vote, they know that that helps them. I think it was uh, 2012, if only white males could have voted, Mitt Romney would have won 48 states. <laughs> so, like, I think it was only Vermont and one other state, if only white males could vote, that Barack Obama would have won. So 48 state blowout. Of course, the result of that 
in reality, where everyone could vote was that Barack Obama was reelected, Mitt Romney didn't win. They know why they're doing these things. The reason that this episode has the title of Uncle Thomas in it, there's a lot of definitions for sellout black people. Black people in the community, they have like, they call them sellouts. They might call them Uncle Toms. Uh, black people that go out of their way to bash other black people like Bill Cosby did once upon a time or to uh, be overly accommodating to white supremacists and racists. And they use these different terms, sometimes step and fetching. I've heard that one before. There's a lot of different terms. Some of them are, are racial slurs. I won't say them on this podcast, but you know what I'm talking about. There's at least five or six terms you could think of. Well, they might have to change it to Clarence Thomas. So instead of Uncle Tom, it could just be Clarence Thomas because actually in the novel, Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote, Uncle Tom is forced civil rights. And he's actually not, the, the way that that term came about is actually not totally accurate. Clarence Thomas would be very, very accurate. I'm not sure that this is a guy who even necessarily knows he is black when you listen to the rulings he makes and the rulings that he writes down. And I'm very reluctant to say that because for a long time, I've been very sensitive to criticism that interracial couples get. I still am, basically. I shouldn't say for a long time as though I'm not anymore. It's kind of the way that a lot of people in the black community think about it, which I believe is wrong is that if somebody is interracially married, they are a sellout to the black community. You've heard people say that before. And so I've always been critical of that. I don't think there's any connection between like if a black person's married to a white person and their commitment to civil rights and being pro-black and, you know, people say like, I'm, I'm black and I'm proud. I don't think there's any conflict between that and who you choose to marry and who you fall in love with. You may have someone like Kamala Harris and people use that to diss her. They're like, she's not even really black. And, and they're saying that because she's married to a white guy. Barack Obama is only half black, but he was married to Michelle. And I never really heard that criticism of him. I never really heard people question, is he black enough? Is he liberal enough? Is he sympathetic to black people enough? Does he care enough about civil rights? I never really heard those arguments towards him, even though if you actually look at his time in office, very little of the things he actually did were specifically geared towards the black community. A lot of younger black people who would never criticize Obama, they think Joe Biden's like a Dixiecrat in Delaware clothing or whatever. People say, what is Joe Biden, what has he done for black people? I'm like, well, private prisons at the federal level, he got rid of that. He doesn't want private prisons at the federal level, which is huge because that's a big part of incarceration. Hopefully that trickles down to a lot of states. He made Juneteenth a holiday. He has had the most diverse presidential cabinet in American history. Uh, His Secretary of Transportation, Buttigieg, has even said he wanted to use the infrastructure money to reunite black communities. I mentioned that earlier. He's given probably more speeches about civil rights than probably Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. Obama did at similar points in their presidency. And of course, Kamala Harris. I don't know that people can really say that he has been terrible for the black community or he hasn't done kind of what he said he would do or what he set out to do. I don't really know necessarily where that perception comes from, but it's just interesting to me that Kamala Harris's blackness is questioned in a way that Obama's never was, mostly because of who she dated. I heard that for Kentaji Brown Jackson. Some people, because she's married to a white guy, some people were questioning that. And I don't think any of that is relevant or accurate at all, but yet you see some people like when Candace Owens comes on the scene, it brings a lot of that back up and like, oh, well, of course this sellout is married to a white guy and blah, blah, blah. Even though a lot of the black sellouts that we've seen over the years, Ben Carson and Herman Cain and Alan Keyes, they're very much married to black women. And so you almost wonder like, okay, how does that fit into your narrative when you've got Alan West and all these others that are not necessarily pro-black at all and are probably the worst sellouts that have ever been. And yet Bill Cosby and Camille Cosby, I I don't hear necessarily any questions of their blackness or whatever. So I hate to admit that in the case of Clarence Thomas, it is true because Clarence Thomas is terrible. 
I mean, he's probably hurt the black community more than any one black person you could think of. Ben Carson agreeing to go to work for the Trump administration as the HUD secretary when he didn't necessarily even know what HUD is or wouldn't necessarily know about public housing and definitely didn't know how to run a whole department about it. You could say that's kind of bad, but you can't say it's as bad as Thomas overturning Roe versus Wade as a percentage. Black women are about twice as likely to get an abortion as white women. And some of that, it begins with the care that they don't have in the beginning, like access to birth control. There's a lot of stigmas about birth control. I'm talking about a lot of black women have never been on birth control. And they believe that there's something wrong with it in terms of like, oh, they're using that to sterilize us. If we ever get the depot shot or the IED and we ever get that put in our bodies, then we'll never be able to have kids. How come you've never even attempted to have birth control? The Tuskegee experiment, which is not really relevant necessarily, but I think there's that suspicion of the medical community in general and also that they're very religious as a group. And a lot of black pastors and black churches, they don't necessarily advocate using birth control and things like that. So when you get into the inequities in healthcare and the beginning, uh, some of it regression in sexual attitudes, just some of it not being having the same sexual attitudes. Like some white women might be like, oh, my mother took me to the side and she explained about taking the birth control pill or inserting the IED or you know, getting the depot shot or something like that. And you ask black women, they'll be like, they never said that. That just never came up. That never was part of it. But when you look at it, it's like now you're going to force double the number of black women as white women to have kids. And a lot of white conservatives phrase that as a good thing. They're like, Clarence Thomas has saved more black lives than Black Lives Matter ever thought about. But what he's really done is enshrined black poverty. Poverty is connected to kids that you don't have a plan for. And I'll say teen pregnancies, I could say accidental pregnancies. Basically, the younger someone is and the less planned that a pregnancy is, the more likely it is to have an effect on their entire lives. And I have seen statistic after statistic of that. I've seen anecdotal evidence of that. There were black women I knew at Auburn University that got pregnant. They dropped out of college. They didn't finish. The guy that they got pregnant by was like, I'll be there, I'll be there, I'll be there, I'll stay with you. He did not. You know, the second the kid was born, it was in and out, off and on, very, you know, loose relationship, kind of like come and go. You could almost say Herschel Walker, who played football at the University of Georgia, and he's had all these kids. It doesn't seem like he set out to have any kids. They all seem kind of accidental or whatever. People say, well, how is that any different than Elon Musk? I'm like, Elon Musk, he seems very deliberate because like all these twins that he's having, that implies IVF or IUI. That to me means that they're almost, nobody accidentally gets pregnant with IVF. Like People go for IVF treatments. They pay for them. They want them. They take them. He's had surrogates. Again, no one accidentally gets a surrogate pregnant. It almost looks like some sinister experiment that he's doing or something like he's creating something in a lab or whatever. I don't know what he's wanting to have all these kids for. If he thinks that'll be the CEOs of his next companies or there's some even more nefarious purpose. I'm sure it's very weird and I'm sure it's on the fringe of eugenics or something like it's probably right on that borderline of fringe science. But he does seem to have a plan for these kids that maybe they don't want or that they don't expect, but they do seem to be very meticulously planned. With Walker and with a lot of the women who are in abortion clinics, they didn't set out to get pregnant. And I think that what Thomas is doing is wrong to force them to have kids. Why? Because he says so? Because he says you have to have kids? The foster care system in this country is dangerously underfunded. So you're looking at a situation where somebody gets pregnant, they didn't mean to get pregnant, and if they have an abortion, then they're kind of doing the responsible thing of, I don't have a plan for this kid or a way to pay for it, and it would be wrong to bring it into the world without either of those things. They weren't wanted, they weren't sought after. And 
on the other side of the spectrum is, well, have the kid anyway and then put it up for adoption. Well, most of those kids go into a foster care system that there is also no plan for. The foster care system, it's not like Republicans have sat down and said, here's how we're going to fund it and here's how we're going to use the tax dollars to better and we're going to like expand it and we're going to, all these hundreds of thousands of kids that are going to be born every year because abortion is no longer legal, here's our plan for those kids. Well, they don't have one, as you might could imagine. They have ways to punish the mother. They have ways to make it illegal for her to get an abortion. They have ways where if she lives in a red state and goes to a blue state, when she comes back to her red state, she'll be punished. But they don't have a way to take care of those kids once they're born. Pro-life people very rarely care about kids. Now, you get some that care about kids, but the majority of pro-life people I've actually met, they're anti-abortion nuts, and they don't give a shit about kids. They're like, I'm pro-life, I care about kids. Online, they literally always say, like, nobody cares about the kids. Well, they don't care about them either. It's always these men, and you go on their profile, and you look through their tweets, and it's Kamala Harris sucks, Barack Obama sucks a dick, Joe Biden's the worst, I hate Black Lives Matter, I hate funding these schools, public schools are socialist, on and on and on. It's nothing about kids. It's nothing about all the money they've given to kids' charities, and all the after-school hours they've put in, and how much they just want to help youth of today, and the youth of today, they have it worse off than they did, and they want to fix it and all that. None of it is about that. It's about really how much they don't like kids because they think they're spoiled little shits. You know, they'll be like, oh, kids today, they're such spoiled, entitled little brats. And then turn around and be like, these mothers who have abortion, no one thinks about the kids, you know? And it's like, you don't even like the kids that you're talking about. So how can you really say that you care about that? And they don't care about it. You look through the majority of anti-abortion people, the vast majority of them, they're not for WIC, women, infants, and children. They're not for food stamps. They're not for for public housing. They're not for increased Medicaid, things like that. They don't want children's health care to be free. Hillary Clinton's wanted that, and others, Democrats have wanted that for decades. They've fought universal pre-K for decades. They've fought universal health care for children for decades. Anything like more money for domestic abuse shelters or foster homes. They don't want their taxes to go up and pay for that stuff. Public education, they don't seem to want to fund that. You could run through the list and be like, you don't support anything that would actually make the lives of children better. You don't even want us to regulate pollution. That's the craziest thing. So you want more kids into this world, but you don't want them to breathe clean air or drink clean drinking water or protect them from pollution. As many kids' health is affected by bad pollution and by environmental factors than it is by abortion, but they never talk about that. Never talk about it. Of course, that also puts kids' lives in danger. Thousands of kids die every year from accidental gun deaths. Probably a few hundred to a thousand die from school shootings, gang violence, whatever, drive-by shootings. They're not creating a world that's actually good for children to be in. They just want more children by saying women have to be punished for having abortions. It it really makes no sense if you look at it that way. But again, the anti-abortion people, they voted down every measure that would make children's lives better, that would make the mother's life better, and they don't necessarily devote their time to that. They'd rather go to an abortion clinic on Saturdays, and they would rather raise hell outside the abortion clinic and be like, you're a murderer you're terrible, you slut, how dare you get pregnant and have a kid? That same Saturday, they could be at St. Jude's Children's Hospital. They could be at Toys for Tots. They could be given money or toys or time. They could be volunteering at a children's cancer ward. They don't do that stuff. 
because they're at the abortion clinic. And that's their idea of volunteering. That's their idea of like charity work, giving to anti-abortion charities, giving to the Catholic Church who gives to anti-abortion charities, then actually going to the neediest kids and taking care of these kids. They don't even vote for politicians that are soft on juvenile crime. The same people turn around and they're like, I need to vote on a tough on crime judge and a tough on crime district attorney. No, the tough on crime people that lock up more kids. If a kid commits a crime at 12 and they go to a juvenile detention facility or a children's prison is basically what it is for years at a time, their odds of being incarcerated in adults skyrocket. But if you have a district attorney who's like, I'm not going to prosecute a kid for breaking into a house. I'm not going to prosecute a kid for stealing a bunch of merchandise, for shoplifting, for things like that. Then that's that's a lot better for the kids' lives. They don't even believe in that. And this is anecdotal, but most of the anti-abortion people I've met, they're really assholes. I'm just saying as a general group, they're a hate-filled group. And this is just the people that I've interacted with online and in person. This is a group that doesn't care about other people. And a lot of their rhetoric, if you get past it, it eventually stops being about the kids at all and being like, women today think they can do whatever they want to do. All these women outside the abortion clinic protesting, some of them bring their own kids there. And they have kids of their own that they clearly don't necessarily take the best care of because you wouldn't take them outside an abortion clinic. Like my son, I could be like, well, you know, should we maybe go to the park today? Or should I take him outside an abortion clinic? and call strangers sluts and have him hold a sign that says abortion is murder, that's traumatizing for a kid. And I don't think a responsible parent would necessarily take their kids there and do that kind of thing. We hear people say, a responsible parent, they would never want their kids to learn about gay and LGBTQ rights. Well, what responsible parent would want their kid to hold a sign that says killing babies is murder or whatever? You don't think that would be traumatizing for them to hear things like that? I think a lot of these women at abortion, I think they're jealous. I think they look at women that are liberated and they're about to get their lives back and they're about to do whatever they want to with their lives. If you're a young single woman in America today, you have a lot of choices. Jobs are better than they have been for a long time. You can move. You can be like, you know what? Just because I was born in Alabama, that doesn't mean I can't move to New York or Los Angeles or wherever I'd like to move. I can pick up. I can move. I can get a good job. On Instagram, things are more positive for women than they've ever been. There's a big movement on social media to stop shaming women for basic life decisions that they've always had to make. Talk about periods. If they want to have sex, don't shame them for that. I mean, there's a big acceptance movement around women that is fantastic and great. Now, not everybody's on board with that, but it's just good to see that, that it's out there. Women have started sharing pictures of their cellulite on social media and things like that. And other women say, like, you look great. This is good. There's no reason that a woman has to be a certain size or whatever you could think. There's a big positivity movement. And I think these women that have had kids, I think they look at these women that are liberated and they can do whatever they like and they have unlimited choices and their life's kind of a romantic comedy. Like, hey, I'm Rebel Wilson dating a woman. I'm doing whatever I like. I'm walking down the street. I'm in my sundress. I'm feeling good. The sun's shining. The birds are chirping. I think they look at them and they're jealous. They're jealous as hell. And they want them to make the same decisions that they did. They're like, I had kids too young and with no plan. And it kind of trapped me in a situation where now I'm not thinking about what would I like to do on a Saturday night. I'm thinking about what do I have to do? How do I pay the bills? Can I negotiate with food stamps to get a little bit more because of these kids I can't take care of? Their lives have become very, maybe not as fun as they could have been, or definitely not definitely not as independent as they would have been. Not as like my 
choices are my own and I think about no one else but myself. They look at these women, they're like, they're selfish, but they're jealous. They would like to have that freedom for themselves and they'd like these women to make the same mistakes, which is why uh, watching documentaries I saw, and there was some PBS documentary where there was a woman who she said, yeah, outside the clinic, this woman told me she was going to help me take care of my baby. And then after it was born, she'd give me money every month. After it was born, nothing, no money, no contact. It was basically like, you can help us come out here on Saturdays and protest these clinics and we can rope more suckers into this lifestyle that we've chosen for you. But it was no support after the kid was actually born, which I'm not surprised about. A lot of the people that talk about, yeah, we'll help you. We'll pay this. We'll give you this money. We'll do that and this. They don't do any of that stuff. And that shouldn't really be a huge surprise for people that they don't do a lot of that stuff. But there isn't that support there because again, look at how people actually vote. The reddest states are the most anti-abortion states, but they're also the states with the worst social safety net, the worst education, the worst social safety net, the worst funding for programs, the least amount of money going into things that would actually make kids' lives better. So we can see a huge overlap with that. You point things like that out, and eventually the anti-abortion people, they'll say, well, why should I have to pay for someone else's mistake? And you think about it and think the self-awareness on you is so lacking. Like the irony police should show up and arrest you and lock you up forever. They should lock you up like you want to do women's bodies because what you're saying is why should I be responsible for someone else's mistake when you're forcing them to carry that mistake to life? They would like to have an abortion and you're saying you can't because it makes them uncomfortable. You've inserted yourself into a stranger's life to force them to make a decision different than you would make and then you're complaining like, why should I have to pay a dollar more in taxes or whatever? And it's almost like, because you said you wanted to be the de facto daddy. The daddy didn't want to be there and the mother didn't want to be there. But you're saying, I'm the de facto daddy. I'm going to help you raise this baby and pay your way through life. And then you don't want to do that when the kid's actually born, even though it was your decision that forced them to that place in the first place. So it just really makes no sense from top to bottom, the more that you look at it. It's a little scary that the Supreme Court has basically made themselves the de facto dictatorship of America. Because no matter what Biden passes, if the Supreme Court can then just come in and overturn it, or they can say, well, Congress couldn't get this passed. And we've all been through this. We all know this. I'll just recap it very quickly. Even if you get the House, there's the Senate. The Senate is very difficult to get anything done because, again, there's more red states than blue states. So the fact that they're even tied in the Senate is incredible. You look at what has to happen in the Senate for them just to tie. Right now, the Democrats control the entire Southwest. People talk a lot about the Southeast and trying to pick up seats there. The Southwest has been the real miracle because Arizona has two Democratic senators for the first time in forever. The first time since the Truman administration that they've had two Democratic senators. Nevada's got two Democratic senators. New Mexico's got two Democratic senators. Colorado's got two Democratic senators. That never happens and they've all got them right now. So that has to be eight votes that they pick up just to tie two Democratic senators in Georgia. Again, it's been decades and decades since that's happened. So again, these are 10 Democratic votes that you definitely can't count on. You can't say like, oh, those are reliably Democratic safe seats. And they have to get all 10 of those just to tie in the Senate. And then there's a couple stray here and there, two Democratic senators in Virginia, for example, which you can't guarantee on that. So to get all that through, just through a tie, and then someone like Joe Manchin's like, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. Even then with Joe Manchin, some Democratic senators like him and Kristen Sinema are like, oh, we don't want to get away with the filibuster. The filibuster would require them to get 60 votes. 
Well, Democratic senators in the Senate to get 60 votes is damn near impossible. Be almost unfathomable at this point that they could get that many votes in the Senate. And yet, that's what they would have to do to please some of the senators who are like, we got to get it past the filibuster. But you look at it and think, well, even if you got 60, Joe Manchin, who won't vote on this stuff with only 50 votes, would he then vote for it with 60 votes? Probably not. So you always think you might need 61 just to get around his vote. So the Senate is a place where progress goes to die. The House has passed hundreds of bills that the Senate won't even take up. Some of the stuff they should have already passed, the Build Back Better, Joe Manchin wouldn't vote for that. Voting rights legislation, he wouldn't vote for that. Codifying abortion rights right now in the Senate, they could do that today. They could pass federal abortion rights protections. Joe Manchin won't go along with it. You could run through an entire list of all the stuff that he won't vote for and won't say yes to. For the Supreme Court to kick that to Congress and say, well, Congress needs to pass all this and get it done that way is nearly impossible. And then I was curious because I thought, you know, I talk a lot about how it's very difficult to get amendments passed. Two-thirds of states have to ratify them, which is obviously very difficult when there's two Dakotas and only one California. So I thought, what was the last amendment that the states actually passed? It was in the 90s. So you got to go back 30 years to the early 90s. They passed an amendment that said if Congress votes themselves a pay raise, it doesn't kick in until the next congressional term. Really weighty, substantial issues, right? Like a pay raise for Congress and the exact timetable that it kicks in. So if this Congress votes themselves a pay raise, they have to be reelected before they can enjoy it. Really material stuff to the health of the nation. And then before that, it's the 70s. So in about 50 years, there hasn't been an amendment of consequence passed at all. You may have seen the show uh, Mrs. America talks about the rights amendment and how they were set to pass that back in the 70s and it got stalled because of Phyllis Shafley, one of the all-time anti-women women. If there's an Uncle Thomas, there should be an Aunt Phyllis because she definitely killed the women's rights amendment, equal rights amendment. And then you go through and you look at like, okay, that died and that couldn't get passed. And then when they finally got enough states to ratify it, it expired in Congress and Mitch McConnell wouldn't pass it. It's an incredibly slow and tedious way to get anything done. So the Supreme Court kicks it down to the state level. Very terrifying and scary. Things can move very quickly at the state level. In Florida, if you just look at everything DeSantis has done, and I'm not trying to beat a dead horse, but I will talk a lot about DeSantis in the next few episodes because I do think he will probably be the Republican nominee in 2024 because... He's terrible, but he doesn't have Trump's baggage. It's like he's as evil as they could get without Trump's baggage. And I could see where that'd be very appealing for a lot of Republican voters. I would almost think the 2024 nominees might be Kamala Harris versus Ron DeSantis. If I had to, you put a gun to my head and told me to pick two candidates today, I would almost think it might be a contest between those two. But DeSantis just this year has been able to rip up black congressional districts. He's been able to pass the don't say gay bill. He's been able to pass the stop woke act. He's been able to hurt Disney. He stripped some of their property away from them. The Reedy Creek property, he stripped that from them, made that now public domain or whatever. And so I know like the week of the 4th of July, when they were talking about Gavin Newsom spending money for that ad, they had some list of like, oh, DeSantis has passed a hundred bills in the last two weeks. And some of it's innocuous stuff. Not all of it is bad going through it. You know, there's also the functions of government where just the day-to-day stuff people have to do as they run a big state like that. There's a lot of stuff that, that just gets done. It's not all like we're making gay people illegal. There's some stuff like naming post offices and deciding to, it can't all be making gay people illegal. There's got to be basic things like renaming the post offices and building bridges and things like that. But there was hundreds of acts. And so he's able to just crank this stuff out. I mean, I can't even keep up with it. I mean, he has a brain fart and then he goes to the legislature. The legislature says, 
good idea, Ron, and then they pass it. Very easy for him to get things passed, whereas our National Congress, they can't pass a fart. I mean, you could ask them about a lunch order on Tuesday, and it probably takes them Thursday before they've gotten pizza or they've gotten Chinese food or whatever. I mean, they just can't get anything done. And of course, it's not the House, it's the Senate. The federal government level is really the only hope Democrats have if we can get past the terrible Electoral College, because the Electoral College is pretty evenly split over the last 30 years, whereas the popular vote, they've won one popular vote in 30 years. But here's a Supreme Court severely limit federal power. Who elected them? Well, literally nobody, because George W. Bush didn't win the popular vote, Donald Trump didn't win the popular vote, but we have five justices who have been appointed by Bush and Trump. The only justice who's a conservative that was actually appointed by a conservative president is Clarence Thomas. Might should have never been on the court because of sexual harassment allegations, but definitely shouldn't still be on the court the way that he has refused to recuse himself from some of his wife's shenanigans. And the fact that he's been on there for more than 30 years. When people talk about expanding the court, they say, Alabama liberal, would you support expanding the Supreme Court? I'm kind of torn. Because my thing is, if we expand it to 15 justices under Biden, what's to stop President DeSantis from saying, oh, it's now 21 justices? If Democrats expand it this year, how does it stop Republicans from expanding it two years down the road or whatever? How does it not just an arms race to determine, like, oh, can we get to 99 justices or whatever? And there really is no way to prevent that. So I almost look at it as like, maybe it would be better to do term limits. Back when the Constitution was written, the average life expectancy for a white male up at that time, a white male was the only person who could be president or a Supreme Court justice, was 38 years old. That was the life expectancy. Well, Clarence Thomas has been on the court almost 32 years. So he almost is the 1776 life expectancy is almost how long he's been on the goddamn Supreme Court. So clearly term limits are in order here. And people say, no, no, it's not in the Constitution. Nothing in the Constitution that a president can only serve two terms. That amendment wasn't put in until the 1940s. More than 150 years after the Constitution was written, there was nothing in there that said FDR couldn't run for a third term and win, and then a fourth term and win. They put that in there to prevent the next FDR, which sucks. That shows you how good FDR was at being president, was they were so scared that stuff was actually getting done, we have to go in there and put in this amendment that's going to limit that. But there was nothing to limit the terms of a president. So clearly we're overdue for terms that would limit how long a Supreme Court justice can stay on the bench. A man who was appointed in the 90s, 30 years goes by, times change, right? Like it's not the same world as it was. Even Bill Clinton would admit that times have changed a lot since he was president. George H.W. Bush, who appointed Clarence Thomas, is dead. So it doesn't make a lot of sense for Clarence Thomas to still be on the bench all these decades later. When I said the Minpire in the beginning of this episode, of course, that's a play on the Empire Strikes Back. But previous episodes, I've talked about the Prictatorship. Now, the Prictatorship is the fact that 99% of the world's dictators are men and have been men. There's been very few female dictators in the last century. Most of the time when we see a female dictator, it's a queen. It's somebody who inherited that position because they had no brothers. So they're only dictators because a monarchy system and they just happen to be who survived or they're who's left were stuck with them. Not like necessarily Queen Victoria was the first choice or Queen Elizabeth was the first choice or Cleopatra was the first choice. It's just that that's who we have left and that's who's going to rule over us now. In modern times, in the last hundred years or so, we've had a hundred male dictators for every one female dictator. There's barely been any. And so that's the dictatorship. The Minpire is a little bit more nebulous than that. It's a little bit more mysterious. It's a little bit harder to 
define. They're not necessarily dictatorships, but it's a coalition of men and male interests that want to try to influence things, sometimes behind the scenes. Sometimes they're de facto dictatorships like the Supreme Court. If, in fact, you give them more power than the president to set certain things like EPA emissions, well, that is the men power, basically, of basically being like, well, there's these obscure rules really aren't meant to be enforced, and they're kind of still on the books. In most states, you can find statutes that are bonkers. Stuff like a woman can't spit on the street without being beheaded. And I mean, that's an example, but I mean, there's a lot of statutes that were on the books that were never taken off. They're still on there, technically. And so the Supreme Court could be like, well, we have to enforce the 1896 law. A pregnant woman cannot be seen in the street or that if she makes eye contact, she should be horsewhipped. They can find things like that and choose to say legally enforcement. But there's things like common sense. There's things like we're not the same people we were a hundred years ago. That should play into a certain aspect. It doesn't with the Supreme Court. Judge Alito talks about things as though the 1300s never ended. These people live in a bubble. They have very little exposure to the outside world, and they frankly don't care about the outside world, and they're not interested in that. A little bit like the Catholic Church, which is shuttered up in Vatican City. They've got all these books from hundreds of years ago. In the great movie Spotlight, the Stanley Tucci character, he was talking about, you think of court cases in terms of week to week. The Catholic Church thinks in decades. They think in centuries. And so if they can find a statute that says, well, back in the 1600s, it was legal for priests to abuse kids or whatever, that's what they might fall back on because that's how little connected they are to the outside world. That's how little they care about it. And I think Thomas and Alito and Gorsuch are 100% there. I think it was crazy that Kavanaugh was seen as the swing vote for abortion. They said of all the justices, Roberts might pull Kavanaugh to his side. He might convince him that abortion rights should be protected and Roe versus Wade is necessary. How desperate are you when Brett Kavanaugh is your swing vote? And you see he was at a steakhouse or something and protesters were protesting him. And he's like, everyone has a right to privacy. Again, the irony police should have shown up and arrested him. These people don't think that they necessarily belong to the same world as everybody else. I think that they look at the Supreme Court as too literal. It isn't meant to be the Supreme Inquisition or the Supreme Cult. It isn't meant to sit over above us. It's meant to reflect where we are now, where we are in that moment. And when people say, no, that's not what was in the Constitution. The Constitution was written the year it was written. It wasn't meant to say 200 years ago, in 1500s, we did this, so we must do this now. The Constitution was a modern document for the time period it was written. It was a revolutionary document for the time period it was written. It was radical and liberal for the time period it was written in. It was not quoting things from the 1500s. It was not going back to antiquated systems of yesteryear. And so for us to take the revolutionary and liberal spirit of the Constitution and then apply this extremely retroactive conservative bent to it of of, well, the right not to starve to death, it isn't in the Constitution, so prisoners, we have no legal right to provide them with food as they're being jailed, is bonkers because it really tramples on what they meant and what they intended that. And when people say, well, what the founding fathers intended, I don't think any of these people would actually like Thomas Jefferson if they met him. I really don't. I think Thomas Jefferson is a better president than George Washington. I think he was a fantastic president. I don't think he would be popular with a lot of the strict constitutionalists who actually go by what he wrote or think that they know what he wrote and actually throw out all the amendments since the Constitution was originally written. I think it's quite ironic that Brett Kavanaugh made that argument. And another example of how the men power can work in ways that they don't even necessarily intend. They pass rules that they 
they don't necessarily themselves want to live by. I have no doubt that if Brett Kavanaugh got a woman pregnant, which could happen theoretically, he likes his beer, he hangs out with party boys and frat boys, there's no doubt he would go have her take an abortion. But he's thinking like, well, I don't necessarily live in Nebraska, so those laws don't necessarily apply to me. Or The Fox News and Tucker Carlson mentality of like, well, we're from California or we're from New York and we live in California or New York. Conservative media actually does live in those states. So they might want to rule over people and pass rules for them or ask them to live by a certain standard that they themselves have no intention of living by. And red state people should reject that. Okay, thanks for listening. Stay tuned for episode 94.